All right, so miracles number six. So uh, I'm a huge Gatlinburg fan, huge Gatlinburg fan. Um, and so if you want to know anything about Gatlinburg, I probably could tell you. Uh, and so a few years ago, I remember seeing the news. It was the night that it was happening. It was in November of 2016, and there was all this news about things that were uh, going on. Well, what happened was there was a small fire Turns out that uh, there were uh, two boys, if I remember correctly, had started a fire in Chimney Tops, which is uh, outside of the uh, area of Gatlinburg. And uh, they knew it was there, and they were trying to keep it contained, and so they didn't really commit a whole lot of manpower to it. Uh, Well, it had been dry for quite some time, and so you have a fire, and you have drought. And then, on top of that, a severe windstorm began to blow into the area. Well, they did not consider the severity of the storm, uh, the firestorm, until it was too late. You see, at 4.30 p.m., Pigeon Forge Fire Department received notification that there was was 19 hours before the, the fire would actually reach the city limits of Pigeon Forge. That was at 4.30 p.m., At 6.30 p.m., the fire was in the city limits. So within two hours of what they expected to be a 19-hour journey, the fire was in the city, in Gatlinburg and in Pigeon Forge. At the end of everything that happened, 14 people uh, died in the fire. It destroyed multiple homes, multiple businesses. And so I remember we went up, that was in November of 16, and so we go to Gatlinburg as often as we can, and so we had gone up uh, not long after it happened, and uh, you saw the devastation. Uh, So there were, fortunately it didn't get into the city, uh, you know, the main strip there through Gatlinburg, but there were many, many condos, uh, you know, chalet village, a bunch of places were burned uh, through there. And so a year after that, so fast forward, we're in Gatlinburg in November of 17. And so we're out and we're uh, walking the strip, you know, strip the streets of Gatlinburg. And uh, there was a fire that had started uh, outside of the outskirts of town. Now, of course, how would we know that? Well, everyone who's working in the city is aware now of any fire that happens anywhere. And so apparently they're, you know, they're monitoring every campfire anywhere. And so as we would go in and out of the stores, they began to talk about, there's a fire. Have you heard about the fire? And so, you know, oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so employee, they went home to make sure everything's okay. And so the temperature in the city began to rise. You know, it's not a very big town. And so the temperature in the city began to rise because a storm was coming. I mean, as, you know, fate would have it, if you will. And so the winds in Gatlinburg started blowing. And so, you know, it's kind of in a bowl a little bit. And so the winds in Gatlinburg began to pick up. And so we're, of course, tourists. And so we're in Gatlinburg. And all of a sudden, you know, there's this conversation of, hey, there's a fire, there's a fire, there's a fire. And then the winds start blowing. And so we realize we should probably leave town. You know, we, we better get out of Gatlinburg because it's, it, you know, it's not, there's one way in. You know, if you go on the main strip and if you try to go back towards Pigeon Forge, it, it doesn't end well. So we go back on River Road, which is the backside of Gatlinburg, and the wind is blowing so bad that limbs, there limbs literally, we uh, visually saw limbs fall from a tree and hit a car that was parked on River Road. So you can imagine now the panic 
that is ensuing in Gallenberg. And so my kids are there, and, you know, Mel and I are there. And so they just began to panic. You know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so they were afraid, you know, everything that's happening here. And so it was just this all of a sudden moment that we're in the middle of now what seems to be another storm that's exactly like the storm that claimed the lives of so many people uh, just one year earlier. You see, in our life, storms can be very abrupt. Here we are on vacation, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in the middle of this fire and windstorm and, you know, damage to vehicles and, and everything that's taking place. All, it was just like, it seemed just like that. And so we went from, you know, eating pancakes and, you know, relaxing to all of a sudden, are we in danger of our lives? And so I th- as I thought about, you know, we're getting into Mark 4 and miracles, and we're going to talk about uh, this journey that the disciples came on, and we're going to specifically look at storms. And I thought about it in our own life, isn't that the way that storms come up in our life? That you have a phone call, or you have an accident, or you have a situation, or you have uh, a health diagnosis, or whatever it may be, and it's instant, and it's abrupt. And in that abrupt moment, everything can change. And so we, we'll see here in just a second that the disciples found themselves in a very similar situation. In Mark chapter 4, and it should be here on your handout, the, the first uh, scripture we see here is Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. It says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Now, do you find it fascinating that he, Mark the writer, says, On that day, right? It's something that was marked. It was specific, and that's the same exact thing that happens in our life, that when you and I encounter storms, whether it be Hurricane Katrina storms, actual physical storms, or we encounter life storms, we remember it as that day, right? We just passed uh, the 29th of August, and so the you know, anniversary of Katrina, and so we remember that forever, it was August the 29th, that was the day that it happened. Well, Mark is writing the same thing here, it was on that day that Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And so in verse 36, it said, Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. Now, I don't really know what just as he was means, and I don't really know why they put that, but I believe there's some significance to that. And so Jesus gets in the boat with them, And they began to go to the other side, Jesus' idea, right? And so it says the other boats were with him. So it had been a long day of ministry, and so kind of get this idea in your mind. Uh, They had been serving, uh, you know, people that began to gather around Jesus. Uh, He's uh, beginning to grow in notoriety, and so people are beginning to acknowledge him as someone who has supernatural abilities, uh, earlier in chapter 4, you see where Jesus had been teaching from the boat. We actually talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. And so Jesus had been teaching again from the boat. And so uh, the rest of chapter 4, Jesus begins to uh, teach the majority of the chapter using parables. Okay? And so Jesus is explaining to them. And the verse right before where we picked up, verse 34 says, He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And so Jesus is spending time with people who are, um, they're interested in who he is, okay? And so people are gathering around, the disciples are there. So Jesus is, uh, he's sharing information about the kingdom in parables. And then he's explaining those things to the disciples. 
And now it's been a long day, been lots of work. Jesus, I'm sure, was very tired. I know, uh, you know, of course, Pastor Brian, Pastor Tony can uh, attribute to this. After you preach, it takes a lot out of you. It takes a lot out of you uh, physically, but it also takes a lot out of you emotionally and spiritually. And so I can imagine that Jesus is very, very tired at this moment. And so, you know, he wanted to get away, and so he instructed the disciples where they should go. And so they get Jesus in the boat, and they begin to move away on the Sea of Galilee. Now, this Lake Galilee is about 13 miles long. I know we've talked about this a little bit in the past. And it's about 8 miles wide. So it's not a huge lake, but, you know, pretty decent size. So they're in the boat. Jesus said, get in the boat. They do. There's a few boats with them. And they begin to travel over to the other side, all right? Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So in one sentence, in just a few words, what Mark does is he instantly gives us this visual of what instantly, it seems to be, takes place. You see, when you read the Gospel of Mark, especially at the beginning, Mark uses the word immediately a lot. And so Mark says, hey, it's almost as though immediately upon getting into the water, they began to encounter this great storm. Now, we know that that's not exactly the order. How do we know that? Well, there's a lot of fishermen with Jesus, right? A lot of the disciples were fishermen. So if there was a storm on the water, it's unlikely that they would get in the water and go towards the storm, right? We would probably all agree with that. And so what's likely here is that Mark is telling us the details of sequential action. So in other words, Jesus said get in the boat and then they ran into a storm. But if we can fill in the blanks here, what we're seeing is that there was some intention here. That they got in the boat and they began to row to the other side. They didn't crank up their cruiser and start cruising across the lake, right? So they're, they're moving across the lake. And when they get up, out into the water, it says that a great windstorm arose. And so here they are, they're in this boat, the Bible says the waves were breaking into the boat, so the waves are taller than the sides of the boat, and the boat was beginning to fill with water. Now, um, this boat is believed to have held around 15 people, it had very low sides, Um, you know, they didn't run down to the local shipyard to get a boat, Um, they didn't go to Lowe's if they had a leak in their boat, they had to figure it out, right? We, uh, we were on a mission trip one time in Brazil, and, you know, there's many modes of transportation that you use in Brazil. And one day, we got into what was similar to a canoe with lower sides. And um, I, I don't know what they call them, but, you know, the engines that are 25 feet away from the handle, you know, whatever those things are, right? And those little long, like, lever deals. And so uh, we're in one of those, and we're in the boat, and we're going across the water. And so there's several of us in there. And uh, they've got the boat canoe going. And uh, so we're talking to the locals. And, you know, hey, you know, what, what do you normally find in these waters? Oh, well, there's piranhas in these waters. Like, wait a minute, time out. Right? That's when you look at your pastor and say, what have you done to me? And so then they say, oh, well, there's, there's jacarees in the water. And so it was one of my first times. I'm like, oh, jacaré, that's a neat word. What's a jacaré? Oh, that's an alligator. So I'm in the water with alligators and piranhas, and now the third, and you know, maybe the worst, they say, oh, and by the way, uh, there's anacondas in the water out here. I'm like, what is happening here? 
And so I, as I thought about this story in the low sides, I remember as we're in that boat, all jokes aside, as we're going, there is someone in the back with a plastic water bottle bailing water as we're going. I'm like, this, this is where I die, okay? This is where it all comes to an end. And so the disciples are in that moment. The, the sides are low. There's 15 of them. You know, there, there's not a, the buoyancy factor is not really factored in uh, to someone who, you know, built their own boat. And so I'm sure there was, hey, you need to stop moving. Hey, I'm getting more waves on my side conversations. And here is this water that's storming into their boat. Now, the lake, as I mentioned, was not that big. Uh, it sits about 600 feet below sea level. And it's kind of in this bowl area, kind of similar to Gallenberg. Uh, but the hills around uh, the, uh, the lake and the mountain, Mount Hermon to the north, which is almost 9,000 feet tall. There are no 9,000-foot mountains in Gatlinburg. Uh, but there's this 9,000-foot mountain to the north of the lake. And so the winds come swirling around that mountain down into this valley, into this bowl area. And so this storm rapidly approached them. And so as you read the commentaries and the descriptions about what took place, is they believe that this storm just jumped on them. And so it was, you know, again, they're fishermen, they're seasoned. And so this is not some little squall that they, you know, they were out on Ship Island and, and th- this storm came up and they said, oh, don't worry about it. No, this is the real deal. And so they began to panic in this situation because they believe that they are about to die. And so the first thing that, and it'll be the first blank on your handout tonight that I want to point out is that in our life, life happens and We don't have any control over it, right? Don't you want to be in control of your life? Trick question, right? Of course you don't, but then again you do, right? So it's kind of like this, well, yes, but no, but yes, but but no. And so life happens all of the time. And the reality is as much as you and I believe and desire to be in control, the reality is you don't have any control, You have no idea when the lights are going to be turned out. You have no idea when something is going to blindside you. Now, trust me, I'm a planner. So I I try to make preparations and try to hedge my bets against this or try to, you know, curtail any downside risk that may come about. But listen, the deal is this, that at the end of the day, I don't control anything, anything. And so life happens to us oftentimes far beyond what we would have imagined or desired to happen. Just last week I was having a conversation with some people and the comment was made, one thing can change everything, right? One moment, one uh, conversation, one anything, one something can change everything in your life. And so the disciples found themselves in the middle of this and they thought, This could be the end. This could be the end. I mean, these guys were experienced, but this time the storm seemed to be different. Apparently, this storm came out of nowhere to their surprise. You see, that's normally exactly how storms enter your life and my life. You see, the issue is not that storms happen. We would all agree that storms happen, and we would all agree if we were honest that we don't have any control over it. The issue is our ability or our attempt to control it, right? We want to control outcomes. 
We want to control scenarios. We want to control every part of it. Every one of us desires, because of our flesh, just like the beginning with Adam and Eve, to be in control, right? That was the original sin is that uh, the enemy said, oh, well, God doesn't want you to have that because he knows that you'll have more power, that you'll have more knowledge, you'll have more control. And so in doing so, God doesn't want you to do that. And so the human desire began to what? To gravitate towards control. And so it's something that we all desire. There, there's a story. Uh, there was this mountain climber who had slipped on a ledge and he was about to fall thousands of feet to his death. But as he started to fall, he grabbed onto a branch of a tiny little scraggly tree that was growing out of a crack in the face of the cliff. <clears throat> as he clung to the branch, the roots of the tree began to pull loose and the climber realized that he was facing certain death. At that moment, he cried out to the heavens, is there anyone out there who can help me? And in reply, he heard a rich baritone voice from the sky saying, yes, I am here and I will help you. Let go of the branch and trust me. The man looked up to heaven and looked back down to where he would fall. Finally, he raised his voice again and said, is there anyone else up there who can help me? Right? Yeah, we're all that way. That we say, God, would you do something in this situation? Would you move? Would you whatever? Fill in the blank. And God says yes, and he moves in that situation. And our response oftentimes is, uh, actually, I didn't want you to do that. Right? As though we know what's better. You see, life is going to happen. And so not to make light of our circumstances and not to be indifferent to the troubles that we encounter. But the reality is we don't control that. And what it should do is it should press us more into trust. And it should press us more into belief in who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. You see, even in our struggles, when we have no control, we want to control the outcome. The disciples' tendency, our tendency, is to do what? It's to do exactly what Solomon warned us not to do. To lean into our own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? That we want to depend upon what we know, okay? Our experience, our knowledge. It's our version of control. That we say, oh, well, I've been in this situation before, and so here's what I should do. Which, this is a perfect illustration that that doesn't work. Because why? Because experienced fishermen are in a boat on the water and they're panicking. Experienced fishermen are panicking. All right? So it's not experience that is going to get you through the storm. You see, God often allows us to be in situations that reveal our lack of control, and this causes us to trust Him. God allows us to be in those situations. Notice how I worded this. What did I say there? That God often allows us. Now, we'll get to it in a minute, but what I didn't say is that God causes us. That's not what I said. I said God allows us. God's not vindictive. And so he allows us to be in these situations. You see, following Jesus is a life of faith, a life where you have to let go of control. We don't like to do that. We don't like to control. Uh, we don't like to surrender control. And the reason, as I began to think about this and prepare for tonight, I, I thought, why is that? And the reason is, ultimately, we don't trust. We don't believe 
that God's ways are better than our ways. We believe that our ways are better a lot of the time. We think that our way is better than God's way. We think that God may lead us somewhere that we don't want to be or that we don't need to be. It's true. And so we act as though we know better. It's our version of control. Now, now we, we dress it up in Christianity by saying, oh, well, I'll pray about it, or God hasn't led me to do that yet, or what, you know, fill in the blank there, right? But life, life teaches us that, unfortunately, we don't have control. You see, not only do we not have control, but number two, following Jesus can often lead us through a valley. To which you would say, all right, I'm out. I don't want to hear any more of this, right? I thought I signed up for the light and fluffy package where you tell me all good things and everything works out, right? Isn't that what we thought we signed up for? No, that's not the case. That following Jesus can often lead you through a valley. It's going to get better. Just hang on. Look in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Well, wait a minute. Jesus, you know everything. And you know there's a storm in the middle of that lake. And you want me to go to the other side, which means I've got to go through that storm to get to the other side. I'm out. I don't, is there another way around? Can we take the helicopter tour? You know, how do we get to the other side on that one? Jesus told them, let us go across to the other side. He told them to go. And the result was that they found themselves in the middle of a storm that they thought that they would die in. How's that, how does that work? Jesus told me to do this. God, you called me to do this. You told me to do this. You see, we've, we've seen this picture a few times in Scripture. So God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he went straight there, right? No, he did not. No, he did not. He paid the fare. He boarded the ship. He went the opposite direction. He went the opposite direction. And so what happened in his life is Jonah chose to do what Jonah wanted to do. Jonah chose to do what Jonah wanted to do. And in Jonah's disobedience, God used storms to bring him to where he wanted him to be. You see, the valley, following Jesus takes us through the valley. Jonah ended up in the belly of a whale, i.e. the valley, because his disobedience led him away from where God wanted him to be. To which he would say, you're right, see, I told you. It is his disobedience that led him into the valley. It wasn't his obedience that led him into the valley. Hang on. Because in Job's obedience... God used storms to bring him to where he wanted him to be. So that just blew that right out of the water. It's not disobedience. It's not obedience. It's both and. Right? Because what God is doing is God is working to accomplish his purposes. And so these storms that Jonah found himself in, these storms that Job found himself in, these storms that we often find ourselves in, I call those storms the valley. They're the valley. You see, here's the deal. All right? I'm convinced that people don't actually follow Jesus until they've been through the valley. 
Matt's opinion. I don't believe that people actually follow Jesus until they've been through the valley. Right? Because here's the deal. What, what does that look like? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Life has been awesome, Jesus, and I hear you're a really good teacher. I've crushed life, lots of possessions, people love me, and they call me the rich young ruler. So apparently I'm very strong. And so I'm awesome. And life has been a golden platter for me. I just need to add you, and hey, I got it all. And Jesus said, sell everything and follow me. To which his mind said, valley, no thank you, I'm out. That we would say, I'm not choosing that. Here's what I believe to be true about the valley. That no one looks at the valley and says, I want to go there. But everyone looks back at the valley and said, thank God I went there. Right? And so when we follow Jesus, we will go through the valley. It happens to everyone. And here's why. Because in the valley, in the valley, it's cut off on the top. In the valley, this is where we find our dependence. You see, in the valley, you really figure out what you depend on. You really figure out, do I really believe that Jesus is enough? Do I really believe that Jesus will come through? Do I really believe that all things work to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose? Do I believe that Jesus can and do, uh, can do and will do all things for my good, right? Do I believe that? Well, that's where dependence comes in, in the valley. If I don't have to depend on God, guess what? I won't. My flesh says, bro, you're good. You don't have to depend on God. We got this thing figured out. And then I'm the rich young ruler, right? And so I realize in the valley, hey, I can't do this on my own. The only way I'm getting out of this thing is if somebody else intervenes. Dependence. Dependence. And so in the valley, this is where we find dependence. Also in the valley, this is where we find out what we truly believe. This is what we... We find out what we truly believe. Will God do what I believe God will do? Right? What do you believe to be true about God? How big is your version of God? How big do you believe God is? How much do you believe God can do? Can God do things that no one else knows about? Can God provide things that are impossible? I mean, we're studying miracles, okay? So is it possible that God could do a miracle in my life? Could God change me? Could God forgive me? Could God save me? Could God move for me? That's where we find out what we believe. Is it possible that God could actually do something that no one else is capable, including me, of doing in my own life? dependency and belief. Do I believe that God will do it? It's in the valley that you find those things out. I don't have to believe anything when everything is going my way. And in the valley, the easy thing to do is what? Blame God. This is the danger. That in the valley, we would say, well, time out. I didn't get myself here. Somebody else got me here. Somebody else is responsible for this. And somebody else better get me out of here. We're about to see that. That in the valley, we want to say, hey, things are bad. God, I thought you loved me. God, I thought you wanted all things good for me. This doesn't feel very good. And so the disciples are in that in-between moment of saying, we're in the valley, we're in this storm, and we're learning things about you that we didn't sign up to learn about you. We're about to die out here in this water, and what's happening? And so in verse 38... But he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion. Remember, he's been preaching all day long. He's exhausted. He falls asleep in the back. And they woke him up and said, um, 
Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. No, that is not what they said. They're panicking. And they said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Right? Do you not care? I thought you told us to do this. What is happening? Now, a few of these disciples have seen some crazy things happen. But this is the craziest. And all of a sudden they realize, hey, I thought you wanted me to, uh, to, to give everything up and follow you. I didn't sign up for this. I thought you loved us. You see, we want control. Listen to this. We want control, but we don't want blame. So when we put ourselves in the valley, what do we say? Well, it wasn't my fault. Why do we not want blame? Because we want the benefits of control and none of the responsibility. We get in the valley and we say, God, why why did you put me here? Why did you let me? Well, you knew I, I had a tendency to do this. You made me this way, right? Why did you make me this way? Why did you do? Why did you let me do that? Will you let me do it? See, we want the benefits, but we don't want the responsibility. I mean, this is an odd message to communicate, and no one's gravitating towards this, but you have to go through the valley. And no one signs up to go through the valley. But everybody who's been through the valley looks back in the rearview mirror and says, I love the valley. And all the things that God taught me in the valley. But no one says, I love, I want to go in. But how do you find yourself in the middle of that? You find yourself through obedience of saying, God, if that's what you want me to do. How do the disciples find themselves in the storm, in the middle of the valley, if you will? Because they obeyed. So number three. They're in the middle of the valley. They have no control. But Jesus in the middle of our chaos changes everything. Jesus in the middle of our chaos changes everything. Look what happened. Verse 39. He awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. Now in just a few minutes, we're going to talk about why you've not ever been in the valley. All right, So hang on to that thought. Peace be still, Jesus says. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, without Jesus in this situation, how does it end? I mean, we don't know anything about these guys. They drowned on the Sea of Galilee, so we know nothing about them, right? But we know everything about them in this situation because they survived. Because Jesus was there. And every one of us who've been in the valley would say, I survived because Jesus was there, right? Let's take a little step further in, okay? So since Jesus is there, then we would ask the question, well, then why did this happen? Well, I mean, why didn't he just stop it from happening? He has the power to stop it from the wind to stop from blowing. Does he? Does he have the power to keep the wind from blowing? Some people would ask that question. After all, Jesus did tell them to go, and he's in the boat with them. I want you to go to the other side. Let's go. Okay, Jesus, get in the boat. So they get in the boat. They go to the other side. He goes to sleep. All of a sudden, the wind's crazy, and they're about to die. And they say, don't you love us? Don't you know we're dying? And he wakes up, stops the wind, and says, really, guys, really? Jesus is with them. 
So we've asked these questions before. If we're honest, we're asking those questions. Why does that happen? Why do we find ourselves in the middle of those situations? I thought God called me to do that. I, I'm trying to do everything that God called me to do or what I believe God wants me to do or what I understand that God wants me to do. We've been there. Now, I've shared the story before when, when God called us to sell everything and move 800 miles away, and we did. Total faith, God will go. No, no one. We didn't know anyone. We moved to town, and it was not what I thought. There was not a welcome committee there. I didn't get, you know, Sunday brunch every day. It was hard. And so I realized, wait a minute, time out. And in my flesh, I thought, I made the wrong decision. And so I began to wrestle, and I was physically sick. And, you know, I was spiritually struggling, and I was emotionally struggling trying to figure this thing out. And I remember saying, hey, this is on God's reputation. He called me up here. So if he's going to do something, if I'm going to fail, it's not on my name that I'm failing. It's on his name that I'm failing. Such a rookie mistake, right? Such a rookie mistake. That it's on his name. You called me up here, God. So look, this is on you. And of course, I stand here today and, you know, I could tell you hours worth of stories of how God brought us to and through and past the valley of how he provided because that's what he does. You see, the question was asked after the storm. Jesus asked him what? Don't you have faith? Why are you afraid? Their response was, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus, after the storm has passed, says, guys, it's okay. Why are you still afraid? You know, the disciples are like, are, are you going to watch us die and Jesus after he totally fixes the situation says no actually I'm not are you going to trust me you see storms in our life come in different shapes and different sizes and for different reasons and so listen you can create a whole theology on this if you want and it would it would be a mistake to do that but I do want to share just a couple of things that I think maybe we think about in these moments and maybe it'll help you to get through those moments the first thing here is that sometimes in our storms, sometimes in our storms, God is correcting us in a storm. Sometimes that God is correcting us in a storm. The disciples didn't do anything wrong here. They did what he told them to do. They got in the boat. And so this is not the situation that we find here, but sometimes in our life that we find that God is correcting us in a storm. And that's where we find Jonah, right? That, that Jonah called, God called Jonah to do something. It says, but in verse 4 of Jonah 1, it says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So God called Jonah to do something. He disobeyed, and so God corrected him in the storm. Okay? Then verse 17, it says that the Lord appointed a great fish... To swallow up Jonah. Great seems to find its way in all of the, this adjective finds its way in these stories. It says he appointed a great fish to f swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God hurled a great wind on the sea. And he appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. God is correcting in a storm. 
So when you find yourself in a storm, right, then you got to say, okay, what's happening here? Am I obeying or am I disobeying? Correcting us in a storm. Well, the second thing is this, that, and we see this in this story, is that sometimes God is protecting us through the storm. That he's protecting us through the storm. Look what he says at the very beginning. In verse 35, where we started, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Remember I said Sunday morning, what did I say in the first service? Words matter. Okay? And he said what? Jesus said, hey guys, let's go fishing. No, that's not what he said. Jesus said, let's go get in the boat. No, that's not what he said. Jesus said, let's get out on the water. No, that is not what he said. What did he say? Jesus said, let us, plural possessive, go across to the other side. What does that indicate? That we are going to be on the other side. That's what he said. Let us go across. Words matter. Let us go across to the other side. So if I'm the disciples, I'm rewinding in my mind. What did he say? What did he say? He he did say let us. And he did say other side. So we're good, guys. We're good. He said we're going to the other side. He didn't say let's go fishing. He didn't say let's get in the boat. He didn't say let's get on the water. He said we're going to the other side, which is incredible why they went, which we're about to see. But he said let us go to the other side. So God called them to go to the other side because they had a mission to accomplish on the other side. And so for you and for me that we've got to say what did he say? And then believe and live based upon what he said. If he said, the work that I've started in you, I will complete it, then guess what he'll do? He will complete it. If he said, your sins have been forgiven, what will he do? He may, that means he wiped you clean as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. So we have to say, God, what did you say? Listen, listen, listen. It is not what some famous name and claim it said on television. It is not what your neighbor said. It is what does the Word of God say. And he said, let us go to the other side. What did he say about you and me? He told the disciples, the call for you and me. What did he say? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, Matthew four nineteen. He said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, Christ was raised from the dead. What does it say? You will be saved, right? That is promises in Scripture of what God says. And so when he calls us to go across the lake, we would say, guess what? I'm redeemed. I called upon the name of the Lord. I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that Jesus raised from the dead. I am saved. God is calling me on mission to be a part of something. And what did he promise that he would do? He would complete it. That we wouldn't say, well, I'm just not ready. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that you have all that you need according to life and godliness. You're ready. So let's just pack up and roll out, right? That we would say, okay, what did you say, God? Stop believing and depending upon commentaries or neighbor commentaries or television to tell you what is happening in the world. Listen, listen, listen. There is absolutely nothing 
that will happen on this globe without the permission of the Creator. Nothing. Nothing. So if you sit up all day, wringing your hands, watching Fox News, well then guess what you're doing? You're disobeying. You have forgotten the promise. You have forgotten the promise. Now that was extra. It wasn't in my notes. So you think Jesus would tell them that in the middle of the storm, you would think that he would say, guys, don't worry about it. I got it. And then he would go calm the storm. But that's not what he did. He calmed the storm, and then he calmed the disciples. He had a mission for them, and he was going to accomplish the mission, which leads us to number four. You are often marked when you are on mission. You are often marked when you are on mission. Look at verse 41. They were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now they're scared. What does that mean? It says, verse 1, chapter 5, they came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. Here they are in this, <clears throat> this crazy storm. Now, Mark uses the word um, translated furious, a furious storm. Have you ever noticed that that's what we have now around here, furious storms? Have you ever noticed that? Have, have, really, have you noticed that lately? We don't just get rain. We get popping lightning, we get thunderstorming, you know, look at this, the result of a furious storm, right? It happens all the time now. I get so irritated because when it rains, it doesn't just sprinkle. It's, you know, run inside and get in the storm cellar, we're all about to die rain. That's the only rain we get. It, it, it seems to be like the thunderstorms are mad at us now. We have these thunderstorms that are so severe and they're so loud and it's crazy and then I mean, the, the weather forecast, they should just quit because they're never even remotely right. We, honestly, in our house, we've started believing the opposite of whatever they say, and we've been more right than they are. So maybe I should double, you know, at night as a meteorologist or something. I don't know. So here's this, this torrential, furious storm. Mark uses the word... Uh, Windstorm, the, the furious windstorm, Luke uses the same word, um, meaning hurricane, to describe what's taking place. But Matthew, Matthew uses the word seismos, earthquake, seismic activity. All right, so he uses earthquake to describe this furious storm. Interesting, right? So let's rewind. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. I think this is on the very bottom of your, the back of your handout. Uh, the couple references that are not on there. Mark 1, 23 through 25. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Okay? Listen very carefully. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. To which, if I'm a bystander, I am getting some popcorn for this one. Right? I mean, this is about to be good. And I'm, I'm amped at this point if this is the case. And so, so here Jesus walks in, this guy, hey, you're Jesus, and I know who you are. The Holy One of God. 
And Jesus didn't say, you are correct. He said, the Bible says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. To which now everyone in the room is terrified, right? So he rebuked the guy and he said, be silent and come out of him. Now I want you to notice, why am I bringing this up? I want you to notice the similarities between Mark 1, 23 through 25 and Mark uh, 4, 35. Look, as, as we get into the story, notice the similarities. First of all, he rebukes the unclean spirit, but he also rebukes the wind. Have you ever rebuked the wind? He rebukes the wind. And then he says, both to the unclean spirit and to the wind, what does he say? Be silent. The word for peace in Mark 4 is to be silent. So he rebuked the unclean spirit in Mark 1, and he rebuked the wind in Mark 4. Why would he do that? Okay, remember, what's our point here? The lesson is what? That you are often marked when you're on mission. So they're leaving ministry. They're going across the Sea of Galilee Galilee to the other side, okay? This furious storm comes up. So why? Why did Jesus use the same words in Mark 1 that he used in Mark 4? Why would he do that? Well, Matt's opinion, two reasons. Number one, Jesus has just spent the entire day doing what? Exposing the kingdom of God to his followers. Anytime you expose the kingdom of God, what do you also do? You expose darkness. When light permeates darkness, what is exposed? Sin, evil, bad, right? And so Jesus has just spent the entire day revealing, revealing the kingdom of God. Well, guess who's not happy about that? The enemy, exactly. And so, number one, why would he use the same word? Because he's rebuking the enemy for attempting to prevent the disciples from completing the mission. Because number two, where were they going? Well, they were going, we'll see next week, on their way to fight evil. They were going to fight evil. Next week, we'll see the freedom that the demoniac receives when Jesus shows up. You see, you are often marked when you're on mission for Jesus. Now, a lot of you would say, maybe, I hope not, but you would say, well, I've never been through the valley. Well, then I would say, are you on mission? Because here's the deal. If you are not having any impact on the kingdom of God, why in the world will the enemy mess with you? Right? I mean, the enemy is going to do what? He's going to focus on those who are making the greatest impact for the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that he's not interested in messing with you. I'm saying that he's going to put his efforts into trying to take down the biggest leader, right? The one who's having the biggest impact. The one who's living the life most surrendered to God. And so here we see... I don't know if you're all afraid or you're confused, but it's truth. And so here's what happens is we see that the disciples are on their way to this mission that they don't even know about. They're just being obedient in the moment. They don't know there's a guy on the other side that's possessed with a demon. But they know Jesus said, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. And they did it. And on the way, they encountered a furious storm to which the Son of God rebuked and said, be silent. 
So they're marked because of the mission. You see, when we are on mission for Jesus, there is a giant target on our backs. Oftentimes, 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 maybe you, we've told before, right after you got saved, well, buckle up because it's about to happen. Buckle up. You see, when we're on mission, there's a giant target. James 1 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, if you sometimes meet trials and various temptations. No, that's not what it says. He says this, count it all joy, my brothers. It's on the back of your handout written, James 1, 2, and 3. When you meet trials of various kinds, when, 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 you will do it. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so James, the half-brother of Jesus, is saying, you will face temptations. You will face trials. Jesus said what? Uh, John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And so in other words, this is what he's saying. If you are living for Jesus, you will face trials. It's happening. It's happening. I can tell you dozens and dozens and dozens of stories in my own life. That if you are living for Jesus, you will meet trials of various kinds. Now, I want to be very clear here, and I want to encourage you, because there's a few things I think are important. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 4, that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world today. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. There is absolutely nothing that the enemy can do to you without the permission of God. If you are a child of God, there is nothing that the enemy can do to change that. If you are a child of God, there is nothing that the enemy can do to change that. But listen, he will spend the rest of your life trying to limit your effectiveness and influence over those whose eternity is not yet determined. He will do everything. To trip you up. The Bible says that the uh, enemy uh, goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He will do everything that he can to prevent you from being a witness and an example and a follower, an effective follower of Jesus. Everything. Once you're saved, no man can take you from the Father's hand. John 10, 29. But he can do everything and will do everything within his power to limit your effectiveness. But the weapons of warfare, Paul says, that we have are what? They're not flesh and blood, but there are powers and principalities. And that is the Spirit of God. So that we would say that I will allow the Spirit of God to live through me. That when, let there be a giant target on my back. Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world today. Jesus said, they don't hate you, they hate me. Right? And so that we would live for His glory and that we would depend upon His power. Thank you, Mark. You're the only one who believes that. I'm just kidding. Right? That we would say, hey, God, look, if the enemy wants to throw darts, I have the shield of faith. 
right? And so we would be confident that we would be confident in who we are in Christ, that we would say, I'm on a mission for Jesus, though I expect that to be the case. Because why? Well, because number five, great storms allow a great God to do a great work. Great storms allow a great God to do a great work. Man, that is good. Great storms allow a great God to do great work. Look what they said in verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, let me put all this together for you. At the beginning of this, we read that there was a great storm. That when Jesus woke up and rebuked it, it became a great calm that led to the disciples' response in verse 41, which was a great fear. A great storm turned into a great calm that led to great fear. You see, life is very similar, that storms come in many shapes and sizes that often lead to great fear. But if we depend upon Jesus in the storm, that it's capable and possible that we would experience the great calm that comes from the presence of Jesus. See, often in our lives we spend much of our time trying to avoid storms and trying to insulate ourselves from life instead of uh, pursuing, instead of pursuing obedience at all costs. I was telling our small group the other day that as adults we rarely do things that we think we might fail at as adults. We, we rarely do things that we think we might fail at. We, we don't take risks oftentimes, relationally and many other ways. We don't take chances. No wonder teenagers think we're boring, right? But here's the deal. As we think about the valley and we think about this experience that the disciples had, what it teaches us is that God shows us things in the storms that we would not otherwise learn. That there's things that only the storm can teach me. A few of those are dependency, right? We talked about this earlier. We talked about belief. That I would believe that God really is capable of doing what God said He can do. That I would depend upon God more. How do you think the disciples felt when they got to the other side and they encountered the demoniac? We'll see next week. How do you think they responded the next time they were in a boat and the wind started to blow? They're probably napping in the back, right? Right? I mean, it's the same for us, that when you experience the provision of God, when you experience the sovereignty of God, when you experience the activity of God, what it creates in your heart is dependency. But it also creates a longing for more. That you would say, God, that was something I've never experienced before. It is beyond my ability to trust something I don't know. It's beyond my ability to trust something I don't understand. But I love you because of what you've done for me, the Bible teaches. And I depend upon you and I believe in you and I will trust you in this situation. And it creates this longing in our heart to be more present. In those moments, it teaches us things 
that we would never learn otherwise. You see, after the storm, the disciples looked at Jesus in a way that they never had looked at Jesus before. And when you walk through the valley, when you experience a storm in your life, you look at Jesus in a way that you've never looked at Jesus before. So we're on River Road in Gatlinburg, and the winds are blowing, the fire is outskirts of town. It seems to be a repeat of 2016. And the limbs had begun, you know, there was limbs falling on cars on the back road. And so we had just recently begun to sing a song here in worship, and my kids remembered it. And so, so they began to sing the song in the storm. You know the song. It says, your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. We sang that song walking down River Road in the middle of a windstorm with the fire on the outskirts of town in belief that those things are true. That you're with me in the fire. I've walked in Gatlinburg in a windstorm with the fire singing this song, believing it to be true because my daughter and my son heard the song in the sanctuary and we sang that song. Our family is singing, you are sovereign over us. And you know what happened in that moment? All of a sudden, guess what we're not doing? We're not panicking. We're casually walking to our car. That peace, that great calm that the Bible says that came over that storm, came over us. And all of a sudden it was, you know what? We're going to be all right. Everything's fine. Everything is going to be okay. And so if you are in the midst of a storm today, it's going to be okay. If you're not in a storm, maybe you just came out, maybe you're about to go into one, you just don't know it yet, but remember this, it's going to be okay. Because the one who is in control of it all is faithful forever. He's perfect in love. He is sovereign over us. Amen?